0: We're rolling. This is real. So I like telling stories about how I met my guests, like our first meeting. And I knew who Jamal Crawford was, obviously, you know, NBA star, and he's from my area, Seattle. But I'd never met him. Like, I'd never covered a game to interview him. Maybe there was some group setting. Maybe I can't, I just, you know, couldn't place it. But I would often help out Lenny Wilkins, uh, Triple Hall of Fame, because he had this amazing charity foundation going to help some children in seattle for health right the odessa brown clinic and i'd go up there and, and help with the auction and so forth there was one night and, and mostly a good crowd i'm not knocking the lenny wilkins crowd but it's a true story they were getting a little loud in the back uh, you know people have a drink or two too many and they're not paying attention and it wouldn't have been a problem had it just been me up there clowning around trying to get people to bid on stuff but I happen to be interviewing a lady I believe her daughter had just had surgery I don't remember all the particulars but it was a serious moment and they're not paying attention and the crowds getting too loud and I'm trying to you know get it under control and I look out and I see Jamal and he has this mean look on his face he's the nicest guy in the world but in that moment he was not happy and it wasn't about me it was mad at the crowd later he would tell me I almost just walked up and grabbed the mic and told him to shut up instead I was quick enough to bring up Lenny Wilkins to restore order, so that's how we got the thing back on, 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 uh, on a good, good place. So that's how I met Jamal Crawford, in the sense that I met him when he was sticking up for me, and he's been a friend ever since. And he always sticks up for me, supports the things I care about. I support the things he cares about, and he's one of the all-timers, uh, NBA, and especially Seattle. And I welcome him to the show.
1: That's a heck of an introduction, and before we actually met, like, you're like folklore around town. You really are because, uh, all the years on ESPN, all the years you've done amazing things, it's like you represented all of us, whether you had met us, whether you didn't, you've always had that connectability ability where you've always connected everybody, right. And always shown love to everybody from all walks of life and, uh, always treated people with respect. So. When we saw you up there it was like a sense of pride i remember one time will conroy came out there to canada i believe he was shooting something for uh maybe ea sports or some gaming thing that he shot something with you as well so uh, you've just always been the guy whether you know it or not you're so just normal in the best sense of the word where you don't carry yourself like you're this legend but you are and we're really really appreciative for all you've done for for our area and what you continue to do
0: well it's funny we have another connection that I would find out about later. This kid named George Foster, who's the athletic director at Rainier Beach <laughs> or old school. Yes, we played JC football together 100 years ago, and so I had that connection as well. I I helped announce one of their games. The Rainier Beach uh, team was yes. pretty good that year a couple of years ago, but their their roster wasn't great. Like like they had some duplicative numbers, and they were giving me some. They didn't give me the same. Stats and info that I would get, say, from ESPN research. So I was up there just winging it. Uh, That was Liddell Smith with the carry, and and the mom would turn around and, no, man, that's so, you know. So we had a funny (laughs) night that night. I got to throw with them. I got ready for one of my veterans games. So, you know, it's funny, the old comedian Rod Long, I don't know if you remember him, Seattle guy, he always Mm -hmm. joked, Seattle's like Mayberry with skyscrapers. It really is a small town, still, right? You're going to see the same people over time
1: absolutely every it seems like everybody knows everybody if you don't know that person you know somebody who knows them and everybody can connect and I think in, in a in a different way that's what makes it special because we all look out for each other we all um are there for each other and like you talked about that night with Lenny I really was well, I was literally this close kenny to getting up there and standing up there like all right enough's enough but like you said you were thinking quick and got lenny up there but um we always have each other's backs and I think that's what's special and I think that's why you see so many uh, guys in sports particularly like really um or like the boom is there because we all look out for each other
0: yeah you know we've both now mentioned lenny twice let's just go there he's like royalty um yeah. when i was a little kid i've told this story at his event but it's worth it here lenny was my favorite player you know i'm i'm a teenager mm-hmm. i'm 12 13 somewhere in there and and the sonics traded him to cleveland for butch beard and uh, we were so mad. You traded our favorite guy, our best guy. I can guys. see you never
1: forgot. Yeah. <laughs> that
0: little running left-handed, little baby hook thing he had, and he was out of Providence. Uh-huh. He was, you know, just legendary player then a legendary coach. And so Cleveland came back to town to play Seattle with Lenny now with Cleveland, me and my friends. This is the old days where, you know, your parents would drop you off at the Coliseum and then some other parents yeah. would pick you up at midnight. Wow. You know, really nobody had big. cell phones, right? This is mm-hmm. 1972, three, whatever it was. So we get dropped off to go to the Lenny Wilkins return game, but we only have like ten or twelve bucks on us because tickets were three bucks for the high seats. You know, mm-hmm. the game sold out, and we don't have enough money to buy from scalpers. So now we got four hours to burn. So what we did, we went. We used our money to go to the top of the Space Needle. Just mess. We got four hours to mess around. We're listening to the game on the radio when we could. For some reason, I thought it would. Have some meaning if I threw my T-shirt off the Space Needle in protest of the Lenny Wilkins trade. It made a lot of sense to me at the time. Nobody else got where I was coming from. Right. Uh, My friend was down at the bottom. He didn't pay to get up, and and it was so funny. We could see him running on the. You know, he saw my T-shirt. He so I recovered the T-shirt, made my protest, got to tell Lenny the story later. It all made sense, and then it all worked out. (laughs) You know, I go down to UNLV. I'm playing football down there, and that's '79. That's the year they they beat the Bullets after having lost to them in '78. Right. And so we win the title, Gus, DJ, Fred, Sigma, Wally Walker, all those guys, Lonnie Shelton. And that was sort of like, all right, Seattle basketball is really, really here, you know. Some years later, what was it, 2008, Starbucks guy sells the team to people who don't live in Seattle, they give it a year or so, the city lets them out of the lease, they leave. And I was in Connecticut at the time, like, somebody will save the day, this ain't going to happen, there's no way we're losing basketball. Right. And we did. And you're in the league at this point. What were you thinking about your hometown watching this from afar? I didn't know what team you were with at that point. You've been with, with a New few. New York, yeah. Okay. And what were your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I couldn't... We had heard the whispers, right? Like, team could be leaving soon. Team could be leaving soon. And, and like you, like, there's no way. Somebody will step up. We have so many millionaires here. Things are going well. There's no way that we'll actually lose our team, right? And so you have a young Kevin Durant at the time who... You, Everybody could see it would be a star, right? You're in transition between the the Rashard and Ray Allen years, but you see a, a young building block, obviously. And just and, drafted Russell
0: Westbrook. Sorry to interrupt. Yes, yeah.
1: And Jeff Green. Jeff Green was on the team mm-hmm. as well. So you see these young stars coming. It's Seattle. We, we have the Seahawks. We have the Storm. We have we didn't have the Sounders at the time, but it's a great place, right? Like you, we didn't think we'd lose the team. So when it actually happened, I think it. Everybody was just shocked. Everybody stopped for a second. They were like, they're really gone. Right. And then from there, it was like, oh, we'll get them back in a couple of years. Oh, we'll get them back in five years. We'll get them back. And I was even the one of the ones like, we'll get them back in five years to now. It's like, whoa, that was 14 years ago. But now I actually do believe we'll get them back soon enough. And, and it's amazing because like you said, talking about Lenny, for me, it was GP, Sean, Detlef, Nate McMillan, Eric Snow, you know, even David Wingate on those teams. And they helped make my dream reality from the standpoint that they were in the community. I could reach out and touch them. You know, so if I saw Gary Payton, he happened to come to my high school game. He gave me a couple words of advice. It stuck with me. And when you have pros like that in your community, you know, supporting you, it gives you a whole different fuel. You know what I mean? And that's what they did for me. And it's, it's sad that these kids uh, don't have the Sonic. So that's why the Pro-Am is so important in a different way.
0: Yeah, he's speaking here of the crossover. Jamal puts on this free pro-am every summer um, that brings in a lot of big names. You'll, you'll get some heavy hitters from around the league that have no association with Seattle, but they love you, and they show up be, you know, to support it. Then I was watching, I was telling you this one time at one of your pro-ams a few years back. I think I was sitting by Sue Bird, actually, and there's this kid just absolutely lighting it up. I was like, whoa, who is Mm the? I've never heard of him. I don't know his name. He's like only 5'10", 5'11". And I find out he's like a sophomore at Western Washington up in Bellingham. He's (laughs) no knock on Western Washington. I don't mean it that way. But, you know, he wasn't wasn't a Pac-12 guy, right? He wasn't an NBA guy. I didn't know who he was. But you bring in a lot of talent, and you help foster it and kind of build the momentum. Look at all the guys in the league now from our area.
1: It's unbelievable. And Doug Christie did it for me. I've actually grew up in the pro-am. You know, I was – uh, my first experience before the Sonics where I actually played with pros. I played against um, Sean Kemp. I played against Damon Stoudemire. I played with Doug Christie on the team. I played against Shinka Darre. And so when I had some success uh, in that setting, for me, I was like, whoa, that was when the light bulb went off. I was like, you really can make it. You know, and the, the NBA guys start taking the interest. Then I got a chance to go to the pro club and work out with Eric Snow and Dead Left Shrimp. But it started in the pro-am. And so for me, I always try to give the younger guys, uh, and now the younger ladies and younger kids, period, of platform. You know, now our first game is dedicated to kids and, and the ladies. So we'll have a 10-year-old kid who's getting his name called on the microphone by Vance or Impact for the first time. You know, they've never heard their name on a microphone. They score a basket. So uh, things like that are really cool. Um, seeing a, a young DeJounte Murray or young Zach Levine or young Paulo Vanquero, like those guys coming up from the prime, is just amazing. Zach Levine, funny story, when he got in the dunk contest, it wasn't from the dunks he did in the season with the Timberwolves. It was the dunks he did in the Pro-Am that happened to make <laughs> Sports Center that everybody took notice of and said, you know what, we're going to get him in the dunk contest. So, uh, so many cool stories to see a Mike James who played in the Pro-Am, who got his first look there, then he got overseas, then he got to the Suns, and he played for Brooklyn and different teams. So, to see so many different people come up uh, in this melting pot of basketball in Seattle, especially with not having the Sonics right now, you know, the Stormer really held it down, uh, I think, it's to be commended.
0: So I remember once, a few summers back, before one of the games, I was standing and talking to your son, JJ, right? Yeah. And I'm just totally messing with him. I think he was only about nine maybe at the time. I can't remember. His, yeah. He was young. Yeah, he was I played in the NBA, uh, kind of a journeyman. I was uncoachable, uh, you know, bounced around the league. And I, I'm just <laughs> making up a dumb story just to to play with him. You came up right. and started laughing because you kind of caught half of where I was going. And then I forget if you interceded or if I – Nah, I'm, I'm just kidding, man. I, and then he says, well, did you play anything? And I, I said, yeah, I played football in college. I wasn't like a big star, but, you know, I, I was on scholarship. And and this kind of is a reflection of your kindness. He goes, well, at least you were good at something. <laughs> and I was dying. Like, he's turned out to be something, right? I mean, you. you I see your clips – on Twitter, often you're coaching and you're mentoring these mm-hmm. other really young kids. It's pretty cool to see him starting to do his thing.
1: It, it's unbelievable, Kenny, because I was good just being the parent who would keep the score right and, and do the clock. I wasn't like I'm a coach and then I got bit by the bug just coaching YMCA and just in-house boys and girls club. And my it was my wife's idea. She's like, you should coach him, and I'm like, ah. And and now that I coach him. It's the coolest thing ever. I, I would rather coach him than actually play basketball myself than actually, and I never thought I'd feel like that, than actually, you know, do TV work. I would rather coach him. It's the coolest thing. We have practice three days a week and, and not just for him, for those other kids, because what they don't understand is the stuff they're learning right now is going to stay with them their full basketball journey. So when they can look back and say, oh, I remember learning that when I was 11 years old and it's cool to see them go from point A to point B and like I tell them, I want you guys to be a good young man first. I want you to work hard and I want you to get better. So even when I'm not coaching you, when you're 15, 16, 17 years old, knowing how to play the game and knowing the game, you'll be able to play longer. And we've had some really cool experiences. Uh, we watch film. Uh, we do so many different things that they don't do at this age. And so they have so many different advantages uh, to continue to get better and continue to, to quench that thirst for the game.
0: You mentioned your wife, Tori, she played basketball.
1: Did you she meet
0: did. through basketball? How did you meet her to start with?
1: No, I actually met her out at the lounge. I didn't know she played basketball at the time, but yeah, she was tough. Her her basketball style was opposite minds than JJ's. She actually played defense. She was <laughs> she was totally like a defender and actually didn't care about scoring. So me and him got the scoring part and the offensive part, and she got all defense. So when he makes any good defensive play, she'll say, "You know that came from me because <laughs> you don't play defense." So. <laughs> Yeah, she was. She was really good. She knows the game. Uh, obviously, um, having her in the house and she, it, she like motivated me to want to coach. But she gives him a different perspective, and, and it's really needed. and It's refreshing, even when I listen to some of the things she says, because it's so simple, but it, it's very clear. And it's a great connection with those two. He's a lot like her personality-wise, too.
0: I'm still upset that you didn't get one more NBA look. For those who don't know, you know, 20 years in the league. Top what in scoring? Top forty? Do I have that right?
1: Fifty-ish. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. I didn't bother researching you. Three-time
0: <laughs> six men of the year, I believe. Also yes. teammate of the year. You know, you've won civic awards in Seattle and elsewhere. Like you got it all, and you're young-looking. You're still in shape. Why did you not get another chance? I know you got a chance during the bubble with Brooklyn yeah. briefly, and you got hurt in the first game. Can you explain it? Like I've asked you a bunch of times and you've, I don't know if you passed up some things that weren't attractive or if it was a shutdown league wide, what happened? Well,
1: yeah, if you, if you go back and look after playing in Minnesota, we had made the playoffs, which was the first time in 14 years there. And I won teammate of the year. The next year I went to Phoenix, but I didn't sign until a day before the season started. So, and that was kind of shocking to me as well. Cause I'd averaged double figures with we playoffs. I won teammate of the year. So I'm like, okay, all the boxes are checked. I'm sure I can still play. I signed a day before the season. Um, then I went to like a, a mentor role and I didn't play much. And then the last month, most of the guys I was mentoring sat out and the coach was like, Hey, just go play. I had my highest score month in my career in that month of April, I averaged 31 points and six assists off the bench, including the 51 point game off the bench. Fast forward again. No contract again. So I'm like, man, I I didn't get it. Then fast forward 16 months, the bubble happens. I get a chance to go play with Brooklyn. It was short-lived, but what you could see in the little time I played was I looked just like I did when I left the last time. So I was thinking I was going to end up going back there. Um, Something kind of changed within the midst of that where they, they wanted me to come a little bit quicker than I thought I was ready to actually go and perform. And so I said, you know what, I'll wait again. I uh, had another team reach out and they were like, Hey, you're going to mentor. This was this past year. They're like, you're going to mentor, um, our young players. And I said, you know what? I would rather mentor the kids in my, my area, my neighborhood. And so that's when that shut the door, but I thought I would get another chance with COVID how I was running wild uh, for a while, but no call came. I started doing some TV stuff and most of the teams like we're well, doing so well on TV. We thought that's where you were at. So, and by the time that rolled back around COVID was over and guys were getting back. So. It just didn't happen i don't know exactly why i think age ageism if you look at it that way but like you said i'm in great shape i love to play i know my skills are still sharp but uh it didn't happen but now at this point i'm at peace with it like you know like i said i I enjoy coaching and doing that more than anything else so i'm really at peace with it but it took a long time to get there that's for sure
0: okay i'm glad you're at peace i'm not yet um (laughs) let's preach and by the way i was going to bring up your tv we'll get to that you are doing great. You, you're you a natural. Like, you know, the game, you yeah, communicate, you just step in. You know, how tough is it talking about the game you love, right? You just have to get right. the names right, just like all of us. Um, is there any, do, do you ever daydream like, I stay in shape, I keep doing my thing, and somebody next year, or are you, are you at this point like, okay, I did what I did?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm the latter. Um, now I'm like, I did what I did. Obviously, I still watch it all the time. I still know um, I could help. But I'm, I'm at peace with, it. I really am. And, and yeah, I, well, this is how I knew, King when I was like, you know what, how can I play on a team from home? Like, I would love to play on the team, but not have to, you know, live at that place and I'm like, yeah, it's time to stay home. So I'm, I'm at peace with it and watching my son go through his whole journey and being a part of that in these young kids lives is like so fulfilling. So I wish there could have been like a curtain call. Um, but it wasn't. And I'm thankful for the years I did have and that I left my mark either way.
0: Somebody asked me to ask you if you were three time six man of the year, why didn't you just start if you're that good? Get him in earlier, or do the minutes just equal out?
1: That's a great question. I, at that time in the league, it was different from now. So I was known as a good player on bad teams. I went to a couple of revealed situations and I was averaging 20 points or 19 points, 18 points, but we weren't winning. So I got a place in the league year nine where I was like, you know what? I don't care. I'll come off the bench if that's what it's going to take to be viewed as a winner because I love winning. I won in high school. I won as a kid. I won in college and take the games I played. So, as fate would have it, I get traded to Atlanta. They have their starting unit in place. Um, and they're like, come off the bench and lead the league and score. So, I did that, won six man of the year. And I took great pride in that because I study guys like Mario Ginobili and Jason Terry and Kevin McHale and Ricky Pierce that you can be a, a great player. Even though you're not starting, you know, when we come up, you think the starters are the best players. But that's not all necessarily true. My five years with the Clippers, I was top five in the league in fourth quarter scoring off the bench with two superstars on my team. So um, I think it changed the narrative a little bit because now I see kids all over and like, you made me want to be a six man. And I'm like, oh, that's that's different because that wasn't the goal when I started this. But yeah, it took on a life of its own. I'm thankful for it. But you do sacrifice by doing it for sure.
0: You got to be around a guy named Michael Jordan early in your career. Yeah.
1: That yeah, could picture hurt. Can you see that picture over my right shoulder over there? It's in the corner. Yeah, yeah. Right there. Me and MJ right there. Yeah. Right there. But yeah, I got a chance to be around him. And my dad actually told me that uh, he liked my game. I'm like, Dad, what are you talking about? This isn't social media. You can't reach Michael Jordan. Get out of here. And my dad was like, no, he likes your game. I'm like, all right. So fast forward, I, I, I get drafted to Chicago. I know his trainer, Tim Grover. Grover calls me at six in the morning one time. Like, Hey, MJ said you can meet him. He's working out. I'm like, what? All right. I speed down there in Chicago. Uh, I get there like six 45, seven o'clock, whatever it was. I Only think I brushed my teeth. I was shot down there and he's in there in the gym working out. And I'll never forget. He was doing these defensive slides. And it was amazing because I'm like, man, this is Michael Jordan. It's like a glow around him. You've seen him, Kenny. It's like a glow around him. Like, this is just amazing. And it's just us three and he's working out. So I'm not trying to talk too much, but I talk when he talks to me he's like, yeah, I liked your game for a while. Um, this summer we can work out together. And I was like, okay. And I remember leaving. I called everybody in Seattle. Remember now I leave there at 7 45. It's only 545 in the morning in Seattle. <laughs> Nobody's up. So they're not answering my calls, but I couldn't contain my excitement. And my dad knew that he liked my game because my dad went to the University of Oregon. And while at Oregon, him and Amal Rashad were like this, Amal Rashad and Michael Jordan are best friends. So that's how he knew that MJ liked my game. Yeah. So it's a full circle moment, but yeah, he's the greatest player to me ever. I get the chance to be around him. I just saw so many different things as far as his work ethic and. He was forty years old and averaged twenty points in the NBA and he was just amazing. His his will to win, his competitive fire, even at that age. He's he's the greatest.
0: I'm so old. I knew of Ahmad Rashad when his name was Bobby Moore out of Tacoma. Yes. He played running back <laughs> yes. at Oregon. Yeah. My sister dated the quarterback at Washington State. So we went to all the games. There was a game where Bernard Jackson for Washington State, Bobby Moore for Oregon, they each went for like two and a quarter rushing. Wow. Like he, he could play. And then he got moved he to receiver, right? Oh, I didn't even know that. Wow. Yeah, we got some we got some good players. It's it's funny. There are a lot of people, you know, who don't know. Like, they think Seattle's up by Alaska or something. Like, they really right. don't. You know, you don't know the whole country, right? A lot of people get mixed up about the East Coast states, too, if you're from the West. But there's a ton of talent. You're helping make it be even more talented through the programs that you run. <laughs> we talked about the Pro-Am, but you're also helping – boys club girls club you have a food event at least once a year that i know of that that you just you know to help with food insecurity you're giving out backpacks like the list is long you help my foundation run freely you you're you're our biggest supporter by the way (laughs) so i I guess you learned a lesson somewhere along the lines about you know give what you can give and, and be of service to others where do you think you got that from
1: I would say my parents and my grandparents, to be honest with you. I think um, they've always taught me to treat people the way you want to be treated. They've always taught me to have compassion for people. And they've always taught me to, you know, put yourself in somebody else's shoes. So I always try to see the best in people. I always try to help whenever I can. And, and the crazy thing is to listen to you say some of the things I've done. Um, out of every hundred things, to be honest, I think 99 things people don't hear about. And I like it that way. Like I, I obviously have to make some things uh, known because I want other people to be inspired. Hopefully they give as well, but uh, most of the time you don't know I do anything. I like it that way because it's truly from the heart and it's truly about me, that person and God know. So that's, I'm good with that. And that's, that's enough for me.
0: Isn't it the small things that actually are the most rewarding and I'm not trying to make mm-hmm. it about me, but like I was going through an airport just a couple weeks ago and there was a lady, a grandma, she, and she seemed to have two special needs kids with her, and they were struggling with the machine. It was one of those deals where you had to use a credit card, and then you go up to the front and get your food. You couldn't pay cash. Okay. I was okay. like, I got you, lady. Like, it was 12 bucks. Who cares? Right? Like, it's the, like the old, what's it, Mr. Those Wendell song? Uh, Mr. $2 yeah, Arrested Development. Right? What is it? $2, it $2 is, a is a big deal to, deal be- to you, it's a snack for yep. me, or vice versa, right? Yep. You got it. I think I said and, it backwards. And you're
1: absolutely right. No, it's absolutely right, Kenny, because- who knows when that family may be in a position to help somebody else, right? right? And that, that positive energy is contagious. And sometimes more than anything, more than even the, the food you bought or the, you know, whatever I may have done, it gives hope. It gives hope that there's still good people in the world who will, who will show compassion. And that that part is inspiring for them as well. And sometimes it gives hope to the hopeless where they may see, you know, it could have been a hundred people that walked past those those people and didn't get them any food. You know, But you gave them hope as well, and, and that pushed them to go on even further, and that's what it's about.
0: Well, I think I was talking to Jamel Hill the other day, and this came up the same neighborhood where it made me sad, it still does, when you're walking down the street as a white person and I see a person of color, and more often than not, I don't know if they trust me. It's 50-50, right? Some people right. look you in the eyes, some people don't. And I always want to just treat people like my dad always said, like, treat the janitor the same way you treat the vice president. Yeah. They're all human, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And that's something, you know, all the race stuff that we're still dealing with. I don't have any complaint when somebody doesn't have trust because I don't blame them for not having it, given the way things have gone. But I love those moments where we just relate as people, you know?
1: Yeah, that's always been me and your relationship, like I think we see things the same in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? So we just see people for people. We show compassion. We don't see color of skin. We don't see any of that. We see who that person is. And I think I feel like we treat the janitor the same way we would treat a billionaire, right? Like it's, and that's why I've always done, that's why I always say I always see out of everything because I've learned from people that don't have a home on the streets. I get advice. Somebody I'm tight with now doesn't even have a home right now. Like, and I see him on the streets every time. And I make sure I take care of him with his food or whatever it is. And he gives me wisdom. So, um, I learn from everybody and I think you're the same way. And that's why we, you know, kind of view the world the way we do.
0: You just quoted that same song. and He gives me knowledge. I buy him some shoes.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, it did. Right. I didn't think about that. It is coming back. You got the lyrics. Yeah.
0: I knew you would excel when you started doing the coverage, NBA coverage, doing the podcast, doing some stuff with the big guys there, Charles Barkley and all them, right? D- right. Did you have any apprehension? I still get nervous for certain shows. Like, if I'm going to perform, <laughs> I, I have good those kind of good nerves, like game nerves. Yeah. Did you have any, like, uh, which camera do I look at? Like, like did you have any of that t- fundamental stuff?
1: The first one, the one uh, that I did were Kenny Through the pit. <laughs> and that's why it worked so well, because I was so nervous. I was trying to be the good teammate. I'm the rookie on here on stage. My first time on TNT and he sets me up going back real nicely. Cause he asked me a question. He dropped, I thought he dropped a pin. He's like, you get that? I'm like, oh yeah. You know, like I was the nervous. And like, yeah, I got it. And when I looked, I'm like, and I knew it was coming at some point because. I even wore my running shoes. Like I had the, the shoes, like, you know what? I'll be ready for him if he tries this. But I didn't know he was gonna get me with the the, the okey doke. So that first <laughs> one I was nervous and then I've gotten more comfortable each time I went on there. So,
0: so you're referring to the the little game they play about who who beats who to the big board. Yes.
1: Who's right? yes. sprinting to the board and Kenny knew he wasn't gonna beat me and I'm still in shape. He had no chance, so he had to trick me and and that's when that's why that one went viral, because he got me with that. Or he really got me. That was not an act whatsoever.
0: Yeah. Didn't something else go viral? You still had like a flip phone or something weird from like you're the last guy to do Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Last guy live with a flip phone, right? With a Blackberry. So it was the keyboard. Kenny was the keyboard. So yeah, absolutely. When I was on TNT as a guest, uh, I was, I was at home, but they were, it's called roses a roses episode where they kind of give people their flowers. So yeah, I went viral with that one as well. Even, even, uh, I think Blackberry start following me on Twitter after that one. So yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, you and I have spoken on the side on this. I think neither one of us is a fan of Unwarranted criticism like where it almost seems personal. Let's make fun of Ben Simmons. Let's do you know, right. that's just not my style not your style however when you're gonna be an analyst talking about people getting paid at a high level to play this game at a high level You do have to be critical in the in the proper sense right like like, I would have done this on that play, or he should have done that on that right. play. How do you not cross that line? And also, how do you... Wait a minute, I'm, I'm tight with him. Can I say something bad about him? Like, do you ever have that issue?
1: You know what? I thought I would, to be honest with you. But the trick I learned is just keeping the game the main thing. And if you keep the game the main thing, when you say something, and you don't say it in a, a personal, critical way, like you said, there's a way you can say you would have done something differently. There's a way you can say Um, there's a way you can challenge somebody as well without being loud and boisterous and making it like you're pointing the finger. You have to do that. No, hey, you're a great player. I know you're harder on yourself than anybody else is. So with that, I know your expectations for yourself is to be great every night. You may not be, but if you can be as close to great as possible, you know, it bodes well for good for your team. So you can say it in a way where it doesn't come off like you're just pointing the finger and criticizing. I would never want to do that because, you know, I played in the NBA for 20 years. I played my whole life. And I understand the emotions that go into it when you're on the playoff stage, when you feel like you're in a, uh, you know, just in hell when you have a bad game and the world's watching. We feel so alone in those moments, and I'm sensitive to that.
0: How thin-skinned or thick-skinned were you as a player if you happened to flip on the TV and whatever, you you had a bad game, you had a a 2-for-14 game and heard people dogging you out and not playing defense, or whatever they were saying about you. Did you just shrug it off, like come back tomorrow or did, did it bother
1: you? Uh, I use it as motivation. So it didn't bother me to the point I would snap on somebody or say something, um, you know, about them publicly, but after a good game where I go 10 for 14, they try to say, Hey, it was a good game. I'll say, yeah, but you motivated me with the last game. You said, I didn't do this. And I make a joke about it, but it was never, uh, like you said this, I'm not talking to you anymore. I was still professional. I use it more as motivation because. I was always my own worst critic i was always harder on myself than uh, than anybody else could have been
0: what do you make of some people will criticize the current state of basketball how the game has changed everybody's launching threes even seven footers i'm kind of like hey if seven footers can knock a three that's progress right the the big guys are but but i do personally miss old-fashioned give me kareem on the block and double team and kick it out to the corner to jamal will you're right like they are different games
1: Totally different games, but I think there's a place for both. I don't, I think just like when you eat your food, you don't want all the same thing on your plate, right? So there's a place for three-pointers, there's a place to, to bang down low, there's a place for the mid-range, which I think is a lost art, especially in high-level playoff games because, you know, obviously it's going to be more physical, so you may not get many calls going to the basket and you don't want to just launch three. So I feel like the mid-range is equivalent to the jab in boxing to keep teams honest. So I think there's a place for it all and, uh, you know, I don't think too much of anything i don't want guys just on the block the whole time but on the flip side i don't want just a whole bunch of threes either i want to still value possessions i still want to you know make sure the game is in a place where it's still competitive you're not just launching up threes but also don't want just a bloodbath either so i think having a variety of everything makes good for the game going towards the future for sure
0: tell me if i'm right or wrong with this when people knock like the old cliche ah, oh, nobody plays defense they certainly do in the playoffs but you know, 82 game season, there's some games where, you know, you got, a, you got another game on Tuesday, right? Right. But maybe the reason why it looks like people don't play defense as well as the consumer wants them is because everybody's really so dang good on offense. It's how do you stop some of the stuff these guys, how do you stop Steph Curry? You're trying to play defense against him.
1: Right, right. You have to stop him with a scheme. And I think that's where it goes back towards coaching because now, like you said, with the new rules, you can't touch as much. So systematically, if a guy can shoot the ball, that means you can get close on him because you don't want him to shoot. But if he can dribble and shoot the ball, well, now you're at his mercy because he can create and draw fouls and get to the basket, or he can shoot the long ball. And so that's why you have to depend on your scheme, depend on help defenses, where that that great player like Steph Curry is not seeing one-on-one coverage. He's seeing one-on-two or one-on-three or all five guys are looking at him. He has all their attention. He has to trust somebody else to make the play instead of him making the play. And I think the scheme is what goes into it because obviously – You know, it's guys are more skilled now than ever before. And also with that, the, the, the game is less physical than it was before. So if you put those two things together, you'll have guys, multiple guys, averaging 30 plus points, you'll have more guys, you know, averaging 20 plus points, and that's where the scheme comes down to how to stop a great player like that, or at least make it difficult for
0: you. Obviously known for the way you handle the basketball um there's tapes i whenever i see little kids basketball hey google jamal crawford watch his (laughs) tape uh sometimes are you traveling that little move behind the back is that legal you know what i'm talking about that little half i'm
1: just i'm just manipulating my feet just manipulate my feet with it It, it's it's a fine line it's very close it's as close as you possibly can get without breaking the rules i'll say that
0: (laughs) when did you fall in love not just with the game but with the ball i I mentioned – I'm not saying this to brag up whatever I did because it was nothing like you, but I got to go to school nah. for free. And yes, I was okay at football. That was the one thing I was halfway okay at. But I fell in love not just with the game but literally with the ball, and I'm, I'm certain of your answer. My dad gave me an NFL ball when I was like 12. I had big hands and I could handle a, a ball, that ball at a young age. And I've always had it in my hand the rest of my life. I still do it at my age now. I walk around the house flipping a football. It just feels good. It's like a pacifier. So when did you fall in love with the ball itself – and what did you do to continue that to make yourself so, so good at what you did?
1: I fell in love with it at two years old. Uh, I remember I did, I really did. I had a ball. They had a video of me with the ball in my hands at two years old. So I, I've, I've never put the ball down. Like I, I've always had it. I took it everywhere I went. I slept, I was sleeping with my ball. And the ball was on the other side of the bed right there. When I would travel, the ball was my one carry on. I would go down the street and i would be dribbling a ball and people, I would do moves on people like they were defenders and people would look back like, what's this guy doing? Like, but everywhere I went, I took it to the mall everywhere. Even today, every car I own, which isn't, I only got a couple, but they have basketballs in the trunk. So it's just, it's just always been a part of me. And and that's where the ball handling came from. I've never once did a cone drill in my life. Like a cone's there, do a move, do this many dribbles. I just made the ball become a part of me. And like when you're walking, you're not thinking left foot, right foot, you're just walking, right? And that's how I am when I'm dribbling. I can, I can, I can think of a move in my mind and literally go do it on the spot. Like I've done it a million times and maybe the first time I ever did it. So it's, it's the weirdest thing. It's a gift from God because I can't really explain it. Even Will Conroy is my best friend. Like there's one thing you do, I can't explain anybody is the way you dribble because I've never seen you use a comb. I've never seen you practice your dribbling. So, uh, for me, it's as natural as breathing. Uh, I've always been one with the ball. I've always tried to be creative. I've tried to think outside the box. You can tell watching me, I spent a lot of time alone just from trying to make up new things and think of new things and playing against older guys. Like even JJ, he works with different trainers now at times. And my first trainer was a guy in the park who was 35 years old, drinking a 40 in between runs, like, you know what? No, you got to cut right there. You better <laughs> make this shot. And so. Those were like my first trainers, and, and that's how I developed my love and developed my skill level as well.
0: Well, I think you're echoing where I was going. That Whatever it is you love or want to love or want to be a part of, you have to do it and do it and do it. So make that thing feel second nature. The feel of the football, I knew where the threads were. I knew how to spin it. Yes. And the same with the basketball, different shape, obviously. Um, but that would apply to everything. So I wanted to know... What message, other than the basketball stuff, the skill stuff, the work stuff, what message do you give to kids? Mine's always be doing something. It might not be the thing you want to do right now, but be doing something because that'll elevate you to the thing you want to do, right? Like stay active, stay involved, make your mistakes, but don't quit on yourself because you don't get to do that thing you want to do today.
1: Absolutely, and and my message always is think big picture, but take it day by day. Like you can't skip steps, you know what I mean? And, And you find yourself Uh, when you say you truly love something, you find yourself actually doing it more without anybody telling you to go do it. Like, I don't have to tell JJ, hey, let's go practice. Always hear the ball. Always hear him dribble in the house. Always hear it. So it's like, oh, well, it's pretty obvious what he loves to do because he does it all day with nobody telling him to do it. And he's, dad, come check this out. I'm I'm working on new things. And so, yeah, I always tell kids, take it day by day, but think big picture, right? Like you want to think of your goals and your dreams, but Let's start checking the boxes of how you get to those goals and dreams and just keep going. Like never let your highs get too high, or your lows too low. Because on this journey, you will have both. You'll have highs and you'll have lows, but you got to stay right in the middle of the storm and just keep trucking away each day.
0: Oh, I got way more no's than yeses.
1: <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> you know. Right? That's not, I tell people that I'm like, yeah, I played in the NBA 20 years, but you got to think there was still half my life I wasn't in the NBA where I was just chasing this dream and trying to prepare for this dream and. You know, there's there's so much that goes into it. So, yeah, there's a lot more notes. Jay-Z, one of the best rappers ever, couldn't even get a record deal, right? So he had to start his own label just so people could hear him because nobody else thought he was good enough to be heard. When you were little, did you
0: pretend to be the the current players? And if so, who was your guy?
1: Oh, man. Dr. J, who you just shot that unbelievable... um, I don't even know what you call it. That was some art, but you just shot that unbelievable spot with, uh, floor Julius and then getting off and here comes his fireball. That was unbelievable. But Dr. J was the first like hoop I had. Yeah. I remember it was his face on the backboard it was a yellow ball and Dr. J magic, Michael, Isaiah. Then as I got to high school, it was like Iverson, Covey, GP. And I would always be in the backyard counting down you know, three, two, one, if I make this shot, I'm going to Michigan, which is a true story. <laughs> three, two, one, make this shot, I'm going to the NBA. I'm like, you don't even have grades in school yet, kid. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> but these were, these were the dreams I had. It just, I've actually lived a dream. I really have, because like for, like you, we talked about the relationship with Michael Jordan. For Michael Jordan, can't even know my name. Like I could tell you everything about Michael Jordan growing up. His birthday was February 17th, 1963. His mom's name was Dolores. His dad's name was James. He was size 13. He, his favorite Gatorade was Citrus Cooler. He was born in Brooklyn, New York. Like I could tell you everything about Michael Jordan. He got cut from his high school team, which everybody knows. But like all these stories, he plays his brother James one-on-one every day and Lou's his brothers five nine. Like I could tell you everything about him and his family. So the fact that he even knows my name is still is surreal to me. The fact I was in a commercial with him, the fact that I was in a commercial with Jay-Z, like these things are like, some things you don't even dream about. I, I would never dream I'd be in a commercial with Michael Jordan. I'm actually sending you pictures I mean him in the commercial. But, yeah, it's just like this is a dream, and I'm just so blessed and thankful. But at a
0: certain point, you belong in the dream with them. Maybe you can still hold them in in a certain respect, but mm-hmm. once you got there, you got there. Everybody who's in the league, like I always tell people, like, they like to rag on the last player. Like, dude, the 12th player on an NBA team, if you went to a gym, oh, he would be he the would best player in the gym just destroy far. you. Yes. It's just that... They can't all be Tom Brady and, and Aaron Rodgers in the NFL, right? There's there's two quarterbacks up here, and there's somebody at 31 and 32, right? So it's the same for the NBA, that every player is really good. Just to get nominated, yes. you know, the old cliche is an honor, just to get in the camp. Then some people make it. Then some people start. Some people get six men. Like, like yep. there's so much talent.
1: And so much talent, and not every not all the best players play in the NFL or NBA. Some of it is just opportunity. Some of it's luck, some of it's preparation. Some people have eliminated themselves by not taking care of their business in school. And they're like, you know what? They got discouraged and like, now I'm going to the streets. I'm doing this or that. I'm doing something else productive. I'm just not chasing that dream anymore. So it's just amazing. And like you said, just being sensitive to all that and being um never being jaded. Like, and that's 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 the thing. Like, yeah, you're right. I belonged at some point, but I still every time i saw somebody i played with scotty pippen i would ask some questions like man in la i always met made sure i sat next to the veteran whether it's chauncey billups or paul pierce or grant hill on the planes to pick their brains i remember one time i showed grant hill tape of him when he was younger and stuff he hadn't watched in years and it was like wow like i'm sitting next to grant hill so even though i was in the moment and i was doing well i never was jaded because i dreamed about this for so long so i had uh, i think the perfect balance of being in the dream and in the moment, being present in that moment, but also like, wow, like look how far I've come as well.
0: It's funny. In my own small little way, I've had those opportunities where, you, like I got to caddy for Bill Murray once. I just walked up to him at a wow. golf event. Hey, Bill, can you explain who I, he knew who I was? I didn't know if he knew. Of
1: course he did, yeah.
0: And But how would I know, right? And then he said, right. for you, of course. And I crossed the ropes and I was his caddy. We wow. mic'd each other up. And it, I, I'd say that was my... Not one of my best. It wasn't horrible, but I was definitely like, "Oh my goodness, I'm doing jokes with Bill Murray!" Like, so I got better with time. You know, got to work with Ben Stiller and and different people. We just interviewed Chris Guest. So once you're like, they kind of gave you like Michael Jordan did to you. You're sanctioned. We, no, you're okay. You you can be with us. Like you're invited, and it's a weird feeling because you got to quickly then cross that threshold and start doing the thing you do if they weren't there and you were the guy. You know what I mean? Like you were the quote unquote, you know, higher name in the, in the relationship.
1: That's amazing. And I was about to ask you that just, I'm not sure any guests ever ask asked you Do questions, you but just ask you a couple, what was your like, wow moment? Or you may have a couple was the first time on sports center was the first time with Bill Murray mm-hmm. was the first time with Ben Stiller. What was your like, wow moment where you were like, wow, this is pretty cool stuff going on.
0: Oh, there's a million of them. Give me five of them. Give me five. Okay. Three to five. For feeling like I had accomplished anything, Mm -hmm. it was when Stevie Wonder's band members knew who I was. (laughs) I'm saying wow, so that's got to be a wow moment. Okay, I'll come right back to him. I got to work with him like four times in my life. First one was in Seattle. I was just starting to be a local TV reporter, Channel 11, KSDW, an hour ahead of the rest. And literally second day as a news reporter, I started out being like kind of a gopher. I was doing all these side jobs and and backing people up. This lady named Alice Blanchard quit to be an attorney, and they had one job open, and they had a hiring freeze, and there I was. You're talking about opportunity, right? Being in the right place. Right. So second night on the job, Stevie Wonder's coming to town, 1986, for the In Square Circle Tour, and Seattle's the opening opening event. I said, hey, we got to go cover Stevie Wonder's rehearsal, like Stevie Wonder, right? So they let me go. They said no questions you can shoot like five ten minutes of b-roll and get out of the gym the old Coliseum and one of the more enterprising reporters ran up on stage starts interviewing him we go like sprinting to the top of the gym where the stage was I'm the last guy in I'm so nervous my hand is shaking and I laid it (laughs) down on his keyboard so he's talking and all of a sudden you hear like and he just calmly reached over turned it to zero and kept talking so many years later I met him at the Detroit Super Bowl when the Seahawks lost to the Steelers. I got to interview him for real, like a legit, you know, serious yeah. interview because he was going to be the opening act before the game. And I told him that story and I said, So I've always told people that we've collaborated. And he laughed. He's like, <laughs> let's make the album. He was funny. He was right. so he's my guy. I'm hoping we get him one day. If you if you gotta connect, hook me up. Um, Dale I'm Earnhardt's right. Daytona five hundred win. Mm. That was pretty cool to be there in person for that.
1: Wow. You were there for that? Yeah.
0: I used to cover car racing. When I first started at ESPN, wow. the way I got in, I had freelanced for, I quit Channel 11 and I had like four years in Seattle. I assembled garbage cans, I sold prepaid legal insurance, and I was selling long distance for MCI. All the while, I was freelancing in TV. Like I did a Sean Kemp story and a Gary Payton story, and I was like this the Seattle correspondent for ESPN, but not full time, right? They'd pay me 250 mm-hmm if they ever used me, right? Griffey'd hit three home runs. Go interview Griffey, right? I was that guy. While okay. I was selling long distance, trying to get by, I pay the bills. And Stuart Scott moved up to sit with Susie Kolber because Keith Oberman moved back over to Channel One with Dan Patrick, Bill Pito, Deb Kaufman, and now they needed one more person, and that was me. So I, I was benefited by Keith Oberman's decision to quit ESPN2 go back yeah. to one. Stuart moving up to be the main anchor, and there I was, the the bonus extra guy. So just getting there I remember my very first show talk about like feeling like you don't belong they used to they'd say all right it's time for the sports smash and it was you know a little two-minute update at the bottom of the hour ESPN two, the early days and I started talking immediately and I wasn't supposed to because they had like a five-second music thing and then you come on Mm -hmm. and the director Dennis Sidori God rest he goes rookie and he made me giggle and so I came out, like, loose, and, like, he, he saved me, right? Because I'd screwed up, but he covered for me, and nobody knew that I'd made the mistake. So, and there were a million. We did some world tours, did crazy sports all around the world, Irish road bowling, the paleo. Uh yeah. But just doing different things was my favorite thing, like keeping it, you know, never getting bored with it, getting, let's try this today, let's try this this week, and getting people to say yes was a thrill. The... The thrill of the chase was a thrill. Hey, let's try to get right. Ben Stiller this week, and he actually answers, "Yeah, sure, I'll do that. Meet me at the such and such." And yeah, so right. those
1: were cool moments. Wow, so many of them. That's unbelievable. Um, that really it, is.
0: I, who knows? The people listening, you know, my my overlords, they're, they're like, "Dude, we didn't come to talk about you." But I, I honestly, no, we did,
1: we did. It's have a great conversation <laughs> with both of us. <laughs> the
0: I, I the whole point of the show is, it's called Hey, Maine. Subtitle Kenny Maine talks to famous people podcast so you're one of them if Seattle gets its team and I hope it's an expansion team I don't want leftovers I want to start a new team let's get two new teams there's enough talent out there We did would you like to be a part you're already there and I I tried to caution you, dude, don't sign up for a thing where you got to travel all the time. You, got, you love your family you miss, too much. You You've traveled miss. a little, not a lot. But yeah. how would you like to be GM? How would you like to be coach? How would you like to be something if Seattle got an NBA team?
1: I would love to uh, play a role of some sort, whatever Seattle, the Sonics came back. I, I think you know, I'm one of the ones who truly love our city, who truly uh, embody what it's about. You know and, and i would love to i'd be honored to um but if not even though i'll still be at every game i have my son at every game my daughter at every game watching uh but i would love to be a part because i've truly grown up you know the first championship was the year before i was born but just the history and the, and the connection with the city i would love to be a part of the sonics and you would have to be a part as well there's no I'll be, doubt
0: i'll be the greeter there's
1: no doubt I'll shake hands you'll up get, get him in there
0: climate pledge Um, right this is a hard right term but I didn't want to go without asking you about this because I know Mm
1: -hmm.
0: how emotional you were when it happened how you expressed it about Nipsey Hussle yes and you must have known him down there in LA
1: yes I actually met him one time and the time I met him was uh, that we played on Christmas night I was playing for Minnesota we played against the Lakers and. I went to say what's up to him. He's right there. We were warming up at halftime and he was like, OG, what's up? And it was funny because at that point, you know, I'm trying to stay young forever, I I didn't like being called OG, but when he said it, it was like, oh, okay. It's like, OG, what's up, man? We just talked and we exchanged info, stayed in touch, um, through Twitter and social media and all that. And so when I heard about what happened, I was hoping it was fake, to be honest with you, you know, there's so much information that comes on social media. I was sitting on the couch in Phoenix. I remember on that Sunday afternoon and Nipsey's situation was terrible because you actually saw what happened, but it was also terrible because. Especially in our community, when somebody makes you like, you have to own your community, you have to help people get jobs. You have to help uplift your community. It was everything he was doing. And so to see somebody that, you know, you say once they are in position to kind of help people do those type of things, get killed on, uh, you know, property that he owned right there in this community was just heartbreaking and heartbreaking stuff
0: the reaction all around the nba was amazing the, the, he had relationships yeah. with a lot of people apparently
1: mm-hmm. he did russell westbrook isaiah thomas from our our area um lebron so many steph curry so many athletes all around the league we could all you know represent and, and feel that for him because Nipsey was like a man's man. Like we all held him in such high regard because of the things he was doing, not just because how talented he was as an artist, but the stuff he was doing in his community. And I think that's what we all aspire to be. So that's why our reverence for him uh, was just off the charts.
0: As we uh, head toward the goal line on the Jamal Crawford interview, I don't know if y'all can hear this. I just like to tell the truth about what's going on. We're in a recording studio in Hartford. Next door apparently is another recording studio. I don't know if it's being picked. I'm hearing it. Maybe you're hearing it, but they're giving us some bass. They're playing music.
1: I I thought you were just setting the tone for the ending, the way to roll out of the the credits for the movie. I thought you were just setting the tone. It worked.
0: It's happening. It's all happening. Um, And you often on Twitter, you've only only written this like 3,000 times, you say music gets you through. Music gets you through. I assume when you write that, you're listening to music, and you just want to share that. Like, guys, find the music that puts you at peace. What are you most often listening to, or is it just a variety?
1: It's a variety. Um, a lot of R&B, jazz, could be rap. Music is, is so special because it can pull from so many different emotions. There's literally a song uh, for everything you can go through in life. There's a song to kind of be right there with you, and, and that's what's so special about it. I know they say sports connect people, and they do, but music for me is like it's like prayer than music. Like music for me, is it gets you almost through anything. It's a song for every emotion, every day. Certain music you play when it's sunny outside. Certain music you play when you're sad. Certain music you play when you're in a, a happy mood. So um, it, it, it's something for everybody, and that's why music gets you through.
0: And as you say that, they're they're taking it to eleven at the other room. Yes, here. they yeah, are. That's fine. <laughs> it's a organic. I, you know, one of my favorite things they're with authentic. you was I was. Getting to host Pearl Jam Radio, yeah, right before the 2020 election, and Jeff Ament, their bass player, and you had never met. You know, you both knew of yeah. each other, but that was kind of cool. Just like, hey guys, really cool. and you you had a little talk. He, he loves basketball. You know, he was a huge Sonic fan, and I, I appreciated your game for sure.
1: And that's what I mean. You're the connector, right? Like you're connecting all these people. Like you said, we had known of each other, but actually had never met. And I probably still wouldn't have met if it wasn't for you. And it's just. It's amazing. I hope for you, like I know it's part of the dream. You are where you're supposed to be, but just looking at your journey and what you've done and and like, you'll be remembered a hundred years after we're all gone. And I think that's what we all aspire to be because that shows you did something right. And for you to be remembered like that, it was more than just you. It's who you touched and how you left the, the impression you left.
0: You might be overestimating things, but I'm going with that.
1: Um, <laughs> okay, 50 years. Let's go 50 <laughs> years. I feel better.
0: Featherway News, something. There'll be there'll be something. Uh, I appreciate you always. I hope to see you soon. Keep up the good work, and you're appreciated.
1: Tell Gretchen I say hello. Thank you so much. Anytime.
0: Hey, Maine is a production of me, Kenny Maine, and Odyssey. Our senior producer is Paul Aspen, Our executive producer is Jody Avergan. And our executive producer for Odyssey is Lena Glazer. Social media support by Joey Capone. If you like our show, please rate us, leave a review, and don't forget to subscribe.